Our Old Testament lesson comes from Psalm 19. Psalm 19, hear now the word of the Lord. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. Um, in the evening service, we've been going through the, the book of Leviticus, exploring how the law of God applies to us today in Christ Jesus. Uh, for those who haven't been able to come Sunday evenings, let me briefly summarize the whole Pentateuch. I mean, if, the five books of Moses begin in the Garden of Eden with God dwelling with his people perfect harmony. The five books of Moses end in Deuteronomy with God bringing his people into the promised land where God will dwell with his people and they are called to live with him in perfect harmony. If you read the five books of Moses, you know that's not going to happen. Then Exodus tells the story of how God brought Israel from Egypt to Mount Sinai and a fair amount of grumbling on the way to, to, to Sinai. Numbers tells the story of how Israel grumbled in the wilderness and refused to enter the promised land and so wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. But God still brought his grumbling children to the land of promise. And so the book of Leviticus is at the very center of the Pentateuch. And it's there for a reason. Because Leviticus is dealing with the question of how can this sinful grumbling humanity enter the presence of a holy God. God has called Israel to dwell with him. Indeed, at the end of Exodus, he even, he even had them build a tent so that he could go camping with his people. I mean, that's our way of putting it. But he, they're living in tents in the wilderness. He says, build me a tent. They're cooking on little camp stoves. He says, build me a camp stove. I mean, we call it an altar. But... but God is going to dwell with his people in the midst of the wilderness and lead them to the promised land. And 
when the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle at the end of, of the book of, of Exodus, no one could enter the holy place. The glory of the Lord was so brilliant that how can God's people enter the holy place? How can they come into the presence of God? At the end of Exodus, they can't. That's why Leviticus is there. And at the center of the central book of Leviticus is chapter 16, the Day of Atonement, when for the first time the high priest enters the Holy of Holies. And then, as we saw, when the high priest enters the Holy of Holies, as we see in the book of Hebrews, entering the Holy of Holies is entering into the age to come. Entering the Holy of Holies is entering into, it's, you could call it time travel. You're entering into the age to come. You're entering into the fullness of God's presence. And this is, this is the thing that humanity had never done ever since the Garden of Eden. And now God is bringing people back to himself. God is opening a way for his people to dwell with him. So the first half of Leviticus is all about how to approach God, our justification. The second half of Leviticus is all about how to live before God, our sanctification. But the heart of Leviticus is about Israel being united in the person of the high priest who enters the Holy of Holies and bears all Israel into God's presence. Now, the reason why I say this is because Psalm 19 is all about celebrating and loving God's law. And sometimes when we hear about, oh, you know, loving God's law, God's, lo God's law revives the soul, sometimes we can think, well, but isn't the law that which condemned me? But the five books of Moses, the very center of the five books of Moses, the center of the law is how do we come into the presence of a holy God? How do we dwell before him? How can we be holy as our God is holy? Oh yeah, the law of God revives the soul. That is actually what the law was for. Not, by law, Torah doesn't just mean all the statutes and rules. Torah includes the stories. The story of Abraham is as much Torah as the Ten Commandments. The exodus from Egypt and the deliverance from Pharaoh and bondage is as much Torah as the command to build the tabernacle. Our New Testament lesson comes from Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, hear now the word of the Lord. O oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. 
Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. So when Paul's talking about the works of the law here in Galatians 3, what, what's he referring to? Paul is thinking of, of the whole law in this context, but he's thinking of the whole law as a covenant as it was given to Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai. This is clear from verse 17. The law, which came up 430 years after the promise to Abraham, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. When Paul thinks of the covenant which God made with Israel through Moses, he thinks of a temporary arrangement that was in force only so long as Israel was a child. When Israel was a child, the law was necessary in order to train Israel to look for the Messiah, the Christ, the, the offspring, the singular offspring to, who, to whom the promise was made. And now that Christ has come, 
the purpose of the law as a covenant has been fulfilled. And Paul uses the illustration of a child very explicitly in the beginning of chapter 4. Israel was the son of God. But Israel was the son of God in his minority. The son of God before reaching the age of inheritance. And, and the law was our guardian. Uh, the term here, pedagogue, referred in, in Greco-Roman culture to a servant who made sure that a, an underage son did what he was supposed to do. So the pedagogue was not a teacher, but was assigned the task of keeping preteen or teenage sons in line. I mean, those of you who have such sons uh, might appreciate the, the, the usefulness of such a thing. Uh, but that's a hard assignment if you think about it, especially because it's going to be a servant who is assigned the task of keeping the son in line. Now, think about what Paul's saying here. The law was our pedagogue that God assigned to Israel to keep Israel in line until the seed, until the offspring, until Christ grew up. Now that Christ has come, the Son of God has reached maturity. Since Jesus has sat down at the right hand of the Father, we know that the Son of God has received his inheritance. So Paul says, all who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And think back to what we saw when we went through Psalm 18 in connection with Galatians 2, that Christ, Messiah, refers to the Anointed One, the Son of David. So all those who are baptized into the Son of David have put on the Son of David. In Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. You all are heirs according to the promise. The law was never the way that Israel was to attain righteousness. The law was the way to discipline the Son of God in his youth, to prepare him for adulthood, for the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, then, what do we do with the law? How should we as Christians think about the law? Well, think about the Greco-Roman pedagogue. When the son grows up, what does he do with the pedagogue? Now, if you're a particularly vindictive sort, oh, thanks, show him. No, but remember, this was a good pedagogue. This was a good servant who did exactly what your father wanted him to do. So if you had a good pedagogue, if you had one who, who showed you what your father wanted and did well at teaching you, your, uh, disciplining you in your father's ways, what would you do with that pedagogue? You'd love that pedagogue. He was a good pedagogue. Now, once you've grown up, would you let that pedagogue beat you up? No, 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 you've grown up. That's not the pedagogue's job anymore. Hint, hint. The law can't beat you up anymore. If you are in Christ, then what's beating you up is not the law. It's the devil. What's beating you up is that it's not the law's job is not to beat you up anymore. The, the law, we, we still love the law, but as we are in Christ, it's, it's only Satan's voice that will tear you down and say, you're not good enough, you're not enough. The law's not doing that. That's the, that's the devil. So how would you treat the pedagogue? You'd love the pedagogue. He was a faithful servant. He did his job well. He showed you the path that your heavenly father wanted you to walk. And so we can still say with Psalm 19, 
The law of the Lord revives the soul. Because David understood that God's law is more than just the pedagogue because we're no longer under the law as a covenant, but that does not mean that the law is irrelevant. Paul, in Romans 8, will speak of the law of the spirit of life, or in 1 Corinthians 9, the law of Christ. So, considered as a covenantal arrangement, the law is outdated. To go back to the law is to reject Christ. But considered as God's instruction, as God's direction for how we are to live before him, the law still shows us the path that the Heavenly Father wants us to walk. And that's exactly what Psalm 19 is doing. Now, why do I say that? Last time we saw from Psalm 18, Psalm 18 opens, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. And in the superscription of Psalm 18, it referred to to David as the servant of the Lord. Now notice in Psalm 19, how Psalm 19 concludes with a reflection on, as the psalmist refers to myself as, I am your servant, and identifies God as my rock and my redeemer. The end of Psalm 19 connects us back to the beginning of Psalm 18. And when you see this going on in the Psalms, this is regular, it's, it's actually something very similar to what we saw in Psalms 1 and 2, where, where Psalm 1 spoke, uh, spoke of, blessed is the man who walks not in the way of, of the wicked. And Psalm 2 ends, blessed is the one who trusts in him, the Lord's anointed. Because there's a connection between the beginning of one Psalm, the end of the next, that's telling you, pay attention to how these songs connect. And the connection between Psalm 1 and 2 and Psalm 18 and 19 is actually a pattern that we see throughout the Psalter. There are Messiah Psalms and Torah Psalms that go side by side. Psalms 1 and 2, Psalms 18 and 19, Psalms 118 and 119 pairs a Messiah Psalm, a Lord's anointed Psalm, with a Torah Psalm, a Law of God Psalm, connecting them and at key junctures in the book of Psalms in order to show us how the law of God is connected to the Lord's anointed. Messiah and Torah are connected, and that's actually part of what Paul's doing in Galatians 3 and 4. The law was all about the coming of the seed, the offspring, the anointed one, Christ. Paul is simply making explicit what the Psalms had been saying for a thousand years. And we start in verses 1 through 6 with words about God. As the heavens proclaim the glory of God, the heavens declare the glory of God, the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Psalm 19 doesn't address the earth and the waters. Psalm 19 focuses on the heavens. We are to fix our eyes on the revelation of God's glory in the heavens. And the language of verses 1 through 6 is is the language of, of what we see in the creation around us. The word translated sky in, in verse, uh, verse 1 is, is the firmament, the, the Hebrew word rakia, which uh, prior to modern astronomy was understood to be a, a solid dome that was over the earth. And the, the firmament is, is that, that blue thing up there that we call the sky. And, uh, and when you think about, this is the language of ordinary observation, uh, when it talks about the sun rising and running across the heavens, that's the language of ordinary observation. I mean, if you, if you know modern astronomy, you're not saying, well, the sun doesn't actually rise, and certainly the sun doesn't go to bed and hide in a tent. Um, so, but that's 
that's the language of sort of ordinary observation. That, but the firmament, that blue thing up there that we call the sky, proclaims the glory of God and his marvelous skill at crafting the, the, the heavens. And all the earth can behold these visible words that God has made. Indeed, the more we, the more we learn about the heavens, the more astronomy you, you dig into, the more you, we marvel at God's handiwork. But what do we actually learn from these words? We learn God's glory. We learn his handiwork. But verses 2 through 6 says very little more because God's revelation in creation tells us of his mighty power and his mighty glory, but it doesn't show us the way of salvation. It doesn't show us how we can draw near to this God. All humanity beholds this glory every day. The heavenly bodies were designed to convey knowledge to the creatures. God speaks of them as being for signs and seasons in Genesis 1. So we shouldn't be surprised that they accomplish the purpose for which they were created. The sun comes out of his tent every morning like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, feeling manly, like a strong man ready to run, a great warrior setting out to accomplish his task. But while the heavens declare the glory of God, seeing that glory does not revive our souls. Seeing that glory amazes us, impresses us, but it does not revive the soul. This, there's a contrast between parts one and two of the psalm that uh, some people have, have said, oh, these, the, the, these, these two parts are so different, they must obviously be different poems that got mashed together. <laughs> there's a reason why the contrast is so abrupt. Because you see the glory of God in the heavens, where does it leave you? We need God himself to speak. It's not enough that his creation speaks. His creation speaks, and it speaks clearly. Everybody sees it. Everybody hears it. But what can change the heart? What can revive the soul? Only the word of the Lord. Notice where the power is located. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Yahweh's testimony makes us wise. Yahweh's law revives the soul. Isaiah speaks of the word of God. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Hebrews 4 says that the word of God is living and active because when you come to the word of God, you are coming not to just ordinary speech, but to the speech of God himself. He is the one who revives the soul. His word, his law, his Torah revives the soul. Now, remember, Torah is more than just the laws, the statutes, the rules. It includes the stories. It includes the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the story of of Moses and the great deliverance from Egypt. And the way that, that the Psalms stitch together these Messiah Psalms like 18 with the Law Psalms, the Torah Psalms like 19 or Psalms 1 and 2 or 118 and 119 shows us the same pattern. 
The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. We were slaves in Egypt, and the word of the Lord came to Pharaoh, let my people go, and God's word accomplished what he said. We were rebels in the wilderness, and the word of the Lord came to Moses. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. The stories, as well as the commands, are life-giving to the soul because the word of the Lord is what gives life to the soul. The soul is, is the deepest part of you, who you really are deep down, your inner being. Our shepherding group has been reading John Ortberg's Soul Keeping, and Ortberg tells the story of, of how he was trying to figure out how to help his congregation grow spiritually. So he, he went to his mentor, Dallas Willard, with the question, what should we do to help our church experience greater levels of spiritual growth? Dallas Willard was a very slow man, never in a hurry. So he didn't jump right in and give a quick answer. He, he thought for a moment and then replied, You must so arrange your days that you are experiencing deep contentment, joy, and confidence in your everyday life with God. No, I corrected him. I wasn't asking about me. I was asking about other people. Yes, Brother John, he said with great patience and care. I know you were thinking of those things, but that's not what they need most. The main thing you will give your congregation, just like the main thing you will give to God, is the person you become. If your soul is unhealthy, you can't help anybody. I'm trying, I said. I, I learned long ago about the importance of having a quiet time. I didn't say anything about having a quiet time, he gently corrected again. People in churches, including pastors, have been crushed with guilt over their failure at having a regular quiet time or daily devotions. And then even when they do, they find it does not actually lead to a healthy soul. Your problem is not the first 15 minutes of the day. It's the next 23 hours and 45 minutes. You must arrange your days so that you are experiencing total contentment, joy, and confidence in your everyday life with God. How, how long do you go in a day in between your thoughts of God and attention to Him? Is it more than five minutes? Is, is it hours? Is it so How long do you go where you, he's out of your mind entirely? As we saw in Psalm 16, verse 8, David says, I have set the Lord always before me. Is he before you in the middle of your important business meeting? Now, trust me. God is not a distraction in the middle of your everyday business, your important presentation to that important person is better when your mind is full of Christ because he is far more concerned with your presentation than you are. Now, that's what the first half of Psalm 19 just taught us. All the ordinary things of creation, and by the way, all of your business dealings are ordinary things of creation because they're part of his world. I mean, so everything in your life 
is part of his world. He is more interested in your business than you are. He is more interested in your family relations than you are. When you're hanging out with your friends, where is God? Right there. He, he loves them far more than you do. When your mind and heart are full of him, then you are fully present with them. It's not that you have, you don't ignore, if when you ignore God and you're focused on your things, you're actually not helping your things at all. Because the law of the Lord revives the soul. When, when we are, when our minds and hearts are full of him, that makes us fully present and engaged. I can only say that, I, just try it for a while. Practice it daily. That in every moment, as you go into every situation, as you go into every conversation, in the middle of, in the middle of my conversation with the businessman a couple weeks ago that I mentioned in the pastoral notes, I, I, I realized that the first few minutes I had, I had forgotten God. And so I was like, oh, Lord, help me, have mercy. And for the rest of the conversation, I can say, God was present in my mind and heart and thoughts as I was talking with him. And it certainly didn't hurt the conversation in the least. Because I was thinking about the Lord my God as I'm talking with this man. And it's not a distraction from our daily tasks. It's where our daily tasks find their true integration in him. Because the law of the Lord revives the soul. And notice how it's the way the psalmist puts it. Because the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. When we listen to the word of the Lord, we learn wisdom. And in verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. God's ways are right. And when we hear his word and put them into practice, we find joy. Because the commandments of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. When our eyes are enlightened by God's word, we see things that we had never before imagined, and our hearts rejoice as we find the right path. Verse 9 points to the righteousness of God's law. The, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. What happens in all of those moments where we forget God? In all of those moments when we forget God, somebody else's voice matters more to us than his. Whose voice are you listening to? Whose, whose voice are you afraid of? Do you fear the Lord or do you fear what someone else thinks of you? Because the fear of the Lord is clean. And as we've seen in Leviticus, when something is clean, it's moving towards holiness. It's moving towards God. The fear of the Lord is clean. When you fear Him, you are attentive to His voice. When you fear Him, you never need to fear anything else ever again. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether because when you see Him and when you hear Him, then you discover that these rules that perhaps once felt burdensome, actually, that's just 
That's just the way we live as God's people, as loving Him and loving one another. The way that God orders things is true. And when people live the way God says, the result is righteousness. The result is a community that puts into practice, that embodies this beautiful way of living. That's why David says, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Here he takes these, these two things, in one sense very different, gold and honey. Gold, the great value for those who, who, who pursue wealth. Honey for sweetness, for those who desire pleasure. And he says, no, no, understand, God's law, God's way of thinking, God's direction, his instruction is, is more valuable than fine gold, sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Why, why do we find it so difficult to, to read God's word? Well, it's because we fear man. We are more concerned with what others think of us than with what God thinks of us. But the question is not, how much time do you spend reading your Bible? The question is, how, how much are you meditating on God's law? Finding, uh, this is why I like the way Douglas Willard put it, finding your joy and contentment in God himself every moment of every day. Because if you are finding your joy and contentment in him, then you will find yourself drawn to his word. And if you are not finding your joy and contentment in him, then you will find yourself drifting away from his word. And that's why David gives the warning. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. There is a warning that comes if we're not finding our joy and contentment in, in God and in his word, then we're going to find it somewhere else. And that's not going to end well. But in keeping them, in keeping God's law, there is great reward. The psalmist relishes God's commands and rules because he recognizes that left to ourselves, we would wallow in our selfishness and pride. And so God's law warns us, reminding us of the peril of ignoring the Lord our God and of the great reward that comes from keeping his law. And we see this in the response to God that the psalmist gives in verses 12 to 14. Who can discern his errors? The heart is deceitful and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Who can discern his errors? The psalmist recognizes, I don't even know all of my sins. I don't even know all that I've done that's wrong. And so when he says, declare me innocent from hidden faults, he's not saying, I haven't committed them. Indeed, the force of the sentence is, please do not punish me for my hidden faults. There are sins that I don't even know that I've committed yet. The law of the Lord reveals the promises of God. And so David asks God, do not reckon my sin against me. And then also, because if you just stop there, then it'd be easy to say, oh, that means I can just keep doing it and never have to. No, but then he says also, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Our response to the law should be first to acknowledge our sin and plead for forgiveness, but then also to ask God, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us 
from evil. This is true repentance. Both turning away from sin, but then also turning to God in Jesus Christ, apprehending the mercy of God in Christ, and rejoicing that in Him we shall be, and indeed in Him we now are, blameless and innocent of great transgression. Do you really believe that God does what He says? Because in Jesus Christ you have been declared righteous. And in Jesus Christ, you have been made holy. You are no longer who you once were. Paul says in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. I've been crucified with the Son of David. It is no longer I who live, but the Son of David, the Christ, who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus is not merely the one who reinstates Moses. No, our, our whole relationship to the law has changed. It's the difference between a son who was a child and now a son who is an adult, who has grown up and entered the inheritance. We are called to delight in God's law, not as children fearing punishment from a pedagogue, but as those who have been united to the firstborn son, as those who have been united to the one who has grown up and entered his inheritance. And so, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Psalm 118 had opened, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. Now, Psalm 19 closes with a reflection on how the psalmist says, you, O Lord, are my rock and my redeemer. When God's law is our joy and delight, then our words are more and more conformed to his word. And so we ask, O Lord Jesus, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, that you might have mercy upon us for your, your son's sake, that we might live as those who have been joined to the life of the firstborn son who has entered into his inheritance, that we might be joined to him and live by your grace all the days of our life. In Jesus' name, amen.